Will you be a benevolent god or a spiteful one? Well, we will find out with Populous this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 39 of the Upper Memory Block podcast. As always, I am your host, Joe, with you once again, as I always am every other week, to talk about a game from the DOS and pre-Windows XP gaming era. Uh, Kate just got back from the gym. I'm a little uh, damp and sweaty. It is damp and cold outside because fall is here, and uh, apparently uh, a little bit north of Toronto, we have uh, they're calling for mixed some mixed precipitation on Friday, snow and rain. So uh, it looks like winter may be coming a little earlier than uh, than usual. But uh, aside from that, it's been a pretty regular, uh, pretty regular week. Uh, one really cool thing that happened to me before I get into the uh, into the show is after uh, after basically giving up hope that uh, I'd get into the Hearthstone beta. I got into the Hearthstone beta, so I got to uh, I got to, to kick around a, a couple of, well, more than a couple, quite a few uh, Hearthstone matches over the weekend. It is so much fun. That game is like crack. So uh, if you haven't gotten into the Hearthstone beta uh, and you want to, well, here's hoping that uh, that you do very soon because uh, I'm most definitely enjoying it. Then again, I'm pretty sure the game's coming out in production soon. So anyways, enough about Hearthstone. That's way too modern. I shouldn't be talking about... Uh, you know, new game betas that have nothing to do with the show. So let's get on with the news. Not a uh, not a ton of news this week, or at least not, not a ton that I found, but uh, a couple of things. So let's start off with um, with some more mist type news. Uh, so in the last show, I talked about a project from uh, Rand Miller and uh, and and Cyan. Well, more info has come out, including the launching of a Kickstarter campaign. Uh, so the game will be called Obduction, Abduction. So like abduction, like you would be abducted, but with an O. So Obduction. Uh, the game is a spiritual successor to Mist and Riven, so we were definitely not wrong about that. Uh, and it will be built on Unreal Engine Four. And if the Kickstarter video and the concept art on the on the Kickstarter page is any indication, uh, this can be a pretty cool looking game. They're aiming to raise $1.1 million and uh, are almost halfway there. At least last I checked, they're around 485000 and there's still 25 days left to go in the campaign. So it's looking like they're going to make it. Uh, I haven't given anything yet. I'm not sure. I may. I may. Uh, I wasn't the hugest Mist fan in the world, but uh, after my show on it, I definitely have an appreciation for uh, for the series. So uh, as usual, I will um, post a link to the Kickstarter or you could just go... Uh, Go to Kickstarter and search for Cyan Inc. or Obduction, O-B-D-U-C-T-I-O-N. Next and uh, and last in the news, surprisingly, uh, and some pseudo-thief-related news, being that we uh, very recently covered that series, uh, the Dark Mod was pointed out to me. I don't think I talked about it in the show, but the Dark Mod is uh, effectively a Doom 3 mod, that turns Doom 3 into Thief. Maybe not exactly. There's copyright issues and blah, blah, blah. So you're not really playing Garrett and stuff like that. But it effectively turns Doom 3 into a stealth action game very eerily similar to uh, to Thief. 
Now, the Dark Mod isn't new. It's been around since 2009, but until now, it always required Doom 3 to uh, to work. So it required the Doom 3 kind of base resource files and it installed as a mod. Well, on October 13th, so it's just a couple days ago, last week, uh, the Dark Mod version 2 released and uh, it is now standalone. So you don't need Doom 3 already, though I'm sure most of us already have Doom 3. But uh, if not, and if you don't want to worry about installing Doom 3 and installing the Dark Mod and messing around, you can go uh, download the Dark Mod and uh, check it out. You can find it at thedarkmod.com. Now, uh, I went to that site today from work, and it seemed like it was down. But, uh, you know, we'll go take a look, and uh, hopefully uh, hopefully it's back up. And, uh, and there, here you go. That is it for the news today. Nice and quick. You're So before we get to the main topic, we got an email about the last show on Tex Murphy. And before I get to that, I just want to say that, you know, Tex Murphy was, uh, was a lot of fun to do and, uh, and it got surprisingly quite, well, maybe not surprisingly, but it, it got quite a bit of, uh, of positive feedback and, uh, Aaron Connors, actually the, uh, I guess you can call him one of, you know, one of the lead designers on, uh, on all the games, including, uh, under a killing moon and onwards up to the new Tesla effect. Uh, reposted the podcast over on uh, Big Finish Games' site and all that. So, uh, so I just wanted to thank Aaron for uh, for plugging the show a little bit. Uh, I know a lot of uh, Tex Murphy fans that hadn't heard about it got to, got to listen to it, and I uh, got some good feedback from there. So, thank you, thank you so much to uh, to Aaron Connors and Big Finish Games, and all you Tex Murphy fans out there that uh, that hadn't found the show as of yet. And if you're listening from uh, from the Tex Murphy uh, from Tex Murphy Land, thank you and welcome and. Uh, we have a lot of fun here. But all that aside, we have an email from Klaus. He writes, Hey Joe, thanks for the podcast, which I discovered because the Tex Murphy Facebook page featured your review of the old games. I have now listened to 15 episodes in five days and I'm hooked. The podcast is awesome and I enjoy the nostalgia trip. My memory of Tex Murphy is that I saw Under a Killing Moon many years ago when I visited a friend. He had a compact 286, I think, and... Uh, he always got the newest games, so he was, of course, popular amongst the boys at our school. Several times I was at, I was at his place, I begged and pleaded with him to uh, let me try out the game, but he said I, could see it, I, that I couldn't see it because he was stuck in a puzzle that made him mad to see the game, so I had to imagine what the game was like based on the front cover. Jump many years into the future, and I found a torrent of all three Tex Murphy games. This was before GOG and DOSBox, so I tried to get it to run on Windows XP, but to no avail. Then, finally, GOG happened, and uh, the very first thing I bought was the last three Tex Murphy games, and I was in heaven. The first game was extremely silly, and uh, I really enjoyed that. The second game was more serious, and the puzzles were harder, at least for me, and uh, the last one felt like a real film noir private eye story and is probably my favorite. I had to wait a long time to play these games, but when I finally did, uh, they were worth the wait. Then, one day, I heard from the grapevine that a Tex Murphy Kickstarter was underway and I donated without any hesitation, and now that I've seen the trailer, I can't wait to play Tex Murphy in HD. That was my story. Sorry if my English is bad, but I'm nationally challenged because I'm from Denmark. <laughs> Great podcast, Joe. I look forward to the next one. A game I would like to see you do is Beneath a Steel Sky, which is now freeware and can be downloaded from the Scum VM page. It's from the creator of the popular Broken Sword series, Charles Cecil. Amazing game. Anyway, gotta go. 
Well, thank you very, very much, Klaus, for that. Um, <laughs> I like that. Nationally challenged. I don't think you're nationally challenged at all. Uh, Denmark sounds like a very interesting country and, you know, potentially one I'd like to uh, like to visit one of these days. But, you know, it's interesting. The um, It seems like a lot of the feedback that I've gotten from uh, on, on Tex Murphy and on adventure games in general, even more so than things like Doom and other stuff like that, uh, are from people that are not from uh, not from North America. But uh, yeah, so that's, that's uh, maybe maybe it's not a, a statistically valid observation, but anecdotally, it, it seems like that is the case. Again, I know in the Tex Murphy episode, uh, I talked about my my coworkers from uh, from Russia and all that stuff, and um, you know, it just seems like these games were were quite popular in uh, in other parts of the world as well. As for Beneath the Steel Sky, it's definitely on the list. Uh, I know it actually comes bundled with whatever i think it's called defend the uh, dos box front end that i use it's uh it's actually there so actually i actually already have it installed on my machine i just need to uh to fire it up and uh and do a review of it so you know maybe in the uh in the near future i may hit beneath a steel sky so thank you so much again and let's get on with things you're listening to the upper memory block podcast time for all right, on to the main topic, a little quicker than uh, than we usually do. So here we are today to talk about the Populous series. So Populous is a series of three games developed by Bullfrog Productions, a company that we've talked about quite a few times already, and uh, published by Electronic Arts. The first game, again, simply entitled Populous, released back in 1989 and was, in fact, Bullfrog's first released game. So here we are at another new genre. Populous is a god game. In fact, it is the first god game, and as such, its gameplay really defines that genre. In a god game, you are placed in the role of a godlike entity ruling over a certain area of land containing a certain population. Your actions are generally limited to indirectly controlling your followers through affecting the environment around them. Uh, Also, your actions generally have a cost in the form of some currency such as mana or influence or renown or, you know, maybe even gold or something mundane like that. Uh, Power generally stems from the number of followers you have worshipping you. Anyways, since Populous is basically the primordial god game, as we discuss its gameplay, we'll cover more details about the genre in general. So let's go on to, uh, to the story. So what is there to say about the story of Populous? Well, as with many early simulation type games, Populous doesn't really have a set story. The basic premise is one we've already discussed. You are an unnamed, all-powerful being presiding over the world as defined by the game map. Your task or your quest or what have you is simply to become the most worshipped deity in all creation. So to do this, you'll have to wipe out the followers of any rival deity you come across. That is that. The rest is up to your imagination. Are you a benevolent god? Are you a vengeful one? Are you a god that does what it takes to defeat evil at the expense of your people? Are you one that places your people's needs above all else? This is one of those games like SimCity and and other, you know, simulation type things, theme park, blah, 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 that, uh, you know, where the story, how you know, how simple, how complex it is, and how much it matters at all to the gameplay is totally up to you. There's no gameplay mechanic that is defining any type of restrictions based on the story. 
So with all that complex and deep and detailed story in mind, let's talk gameplay. Now the gameplay is really where Populous shines. Uh, it's not because it's deep and complex, but because it's actually very, very simple. As we just stated, you're a god. Your goal is simple and it is singular. You have to exterminate the enemy. Your enemy is any deity that isn't you and his associated followers. So there's three separate game modes in Populous. You have the tutorial. Here you kind of drop into a predefined game where you can just mess around and learn how things work. Uh, you also have custom where you define your own game parameters and main game and you know things like that. Every kind of little fiddly detail you want to change. I think there's something like 60 or 70 different options that you can uh, play with in a custom game. But those two aside, the main game type is Conquest. In Conquest, you steadily progress through Populous's 500 levels. Each level will have a slightly different restrict set of restrictions on it. Uh, let's take the first level of Conquest mode, as we tend to do. Uh, it's called Genesis. This level, and as most levels do, start with an information screen letting you know exactly what you're getting into. So we're told this is battle number zero. So I guess the uh, there's 499 levels since it's a zero-based list. So these are very programmery people that are doing this. The first one is not one, it is zero. So in battle number zero, the landscape will be grassy plains. Enemy reactions will be very slow. The enemy's rating is very poor. Land will be built on people. Swamps are bottomless and water is fatal. Both sides start with three population and uh, you can cause earthquakes and floods and create swamps and nights. Your AI opponent cannot do any of these things. So you're definitely at an advantage in this first fight or battle, or match, or whatever you want to call it. I'll probably call it all three throughout the rest of the podcast. So there's a few items of note here. Uh, one, the little confusing thing, is land builds on people. So what this means is that you can't perform any actions unless at least one of your peeps, a peep is one of your people, we'll talk about that in dev story, uh, so if at least one of your people is in the close-up map view. The other option here, which is probably a little more complicated, is build near towns. This, based on the previous definition, will likely mean that uh, you can only affect the world if a settled town is on your close-up map. Water is fatal means that if any of your people fall in water, they die instantly. Otherwise, if water is set to non-fatal, you're given a small amount of time to re-raise the land they were on if you want to save them. Another hazard that is controlled by this kind of game setup is swamps. So you can have bottomless swamps. So bottomless swamps swallow an unlimited number of peeps. Basically, if they walk into a swamp, they may get sucked under the, uh, the swampy morass, if you will. Shallow swamps, the other option, uh, only swallow a single peep, and uh, then they revert kind of to regular land. So with the game setup, we can begin. There are a few important elements on the game screen. The most prominent, right in the middle, is the close-up map. This is an 8x8 isometric grid view of the world through which you interact with things. In the upper left, we have what is called the Book of Worlds. This is your world map. On this map, you can see kind of small blinking dots representing both your followers and those of your enemy. So right now, this is kind of like close-up map and world map is kind of similar to you know an RTS game anything like that, though the world map is decidedly smaller than uh, than we've seen in any RTS game we've covered. On the bottom left of the wedge, so the, the close-up map is kind of in, it's in an isometric view, so it's kind of a diamond in the middle of your screen. The world map is in kind of the top left 
triangle of the screen and in the bottom left triangle uh, we have the game controls in the middle of the controls you have your your view your the, the arrows move the map view in any of eight directions and um, aside from that we'll talk about the rest as uh, as we play so you start off looking at the person who is designated as your leader the leader is really the only peep you have any modicum of control over you can tell who your leader is because they have a small onk attached to themselves. So your people are wandering around exploring. When they find a patch of flat land, they will build a small hut. Your followers will only build huts on flat land. So why not use your divine powers to make some planes for them? This is where the core gameplay comes in. Your left mouse button raises land and the right mouse button lowers it. It's actually referred to as nippling the land since if you raise a single point of land up one level, it sort of forms a little triangular nipple-looking thing. Uh, Peter Molyneux acknowledges the vaguely sexual undertones of this name. We'll talk about Peter Molyneux quite a bit more in the dev story. So as you clear more land, your peeps create more huts. When the area around a single hut increases to a given point, the hut will upgrade into a log cabin. The cabin will upgrade into a stone hut, the stone hut into a small castle, and the small castle into a larger keep. So buildings generate mana, which surprisingly or oddly is spelt with two N's, so M-A-N-N-A instead of M-A-N-A like we're used to seeing. But that aside, uh, buildings generate mana, and mana allows you to perform actions from you know simply raising and lowering the land to more advanced functions that we will get into in a little bit. So while you're getting your ducks in a row, your opponent, be it AI or human, is doing the same thing. Your goal is to expand faster and take out your enemy's followers and settlements. To control the direction of your expansion, you have what is called the Papal Magnet. Now the Papal Magnet is an onk or a skull, depending on if you're playing the good side or the evil side. Now this magnet acts as a rallying point for your people. If you change their mode from settle to go to papal magnet, these buttons are in that uh, control area that I, I've, I've previously referred to. So if you change their their mode uh, from settle to go to papal magnet, they will gather near your leader and all walk to where the papal magnet is located. So you don't actually control your people. Your people are going to follow your leader and your leader is going to walk to the papal magnet. Once they get to a new area that you want to settle, whether it's at the papal magnet or on the way there, you just switch them back to settling mode and they will continue doing their work, building huts and castles and all that noise. So your followers slowly grow in strength and numbers and uh, your expansion may and should probably start to butt up against that of your enemy. This is where the fun begins. You can use your basic land control powers to make things favorable for your people to settle and mess things up for your opponent. So, you know, people like both sides like settling on flat land. So if you kind of make your side a little flat and then go into the enemy's territory and, uh, you know, start making hills and other things like that, it will uh, it will impede their progress. So on top of this kind of uh, strategy, once your mana level gets high enough, you unlock more powerful divine interventions. You can create earthquakes, you can cause floods, create swamps. These all affect the land in the view of your close-up map. However, these things can kind of be mixed blessings. Causing an earthquake will severely disrupt your enemy's settlements, but if you want to take over the same land, you'll have to spend some time and mana putting things back into rights. In addition to natural disasters, 
there's another tool you have closer to the end of the match. If you have the mana, you can convert your leader into a knight. This uses up your leader and temporarily leaves you without one. Switching it to go to papal magnet mode will cause the first peep to touch the magnet to become your new leader. It's important to have a leader at all times, since without one, you have no control whatsoever really over your peeps, nor can you move your papal magnet. I got into trouble with this quite a few times. My papal magnet got stuck deep in enemy territory and I couldn't generate a new leader. That aside, your new knight will run around the map, systematically destroying any enemy peeps in buildings. You can generate as many knights as you have mana for. Finally, there's one more divine intervention called Armageddon. Once you click this button, you basically give up all control over events of the game. Armageddon causes the papal magnets of both sides to be placed in the middle of the map. All peeps proceed to this point, creating land if they need to get across any water blocks. Once in the middle, it's a fight to the death. The side with the last man standing wins the match. So if you're going to set this off, make sure you've got more peeps than your opponent and at the very end also that they're a little bit stronger. So this process continues over all 500 levels of the game. Between each one, you have a small cutscene where uh, the white-skinned, I guess he's called the, the Goblin Lord, sort of congratulates you and sort of berates you at the same time. Also, depending on your performance, you may skip some maps to accelerate your progression through the levels. For example, I started off at Battle Zero and moved directly to Battle Three since I did okay in the first fight. Once you get to the end of the 500 levels, the Goblin Lord congratulates you and the day is won. So on top of this very extensive single-player gameplay, a very important aspect of Populace was multiplayer. A two-player game could be played via RS-232 Null Modem or Standard Voice Modem. The gameplay was effectively the same as the single-player, except with the added challenge of having another human on the other end. This actually was the primary way the game was designed and remains a very compelling aspect of the series even today. Both players play on the same map and can do everything they did to an AI opponent, can look up their expansion by fouling their land, throw out disasters out, create knights, and cause all kinds of Armageddon. It's a ton of fun to, uh, to play against another person. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Okay, dev story time. We're skipping the tech focus this week because the tech focus is kind of uh, integrated here into the uh, into the dev story, and it, and it is a good one. So if you go back to uh, to the older Bullfrog episodes I've done, Syndicate and whatever else, what did I do? Dungeon Keeper, all those, uh, you can get all the details of Molyneux's early life and his initial founding of Taurus Impex Limited with his business uh, partner, Les Edgar. That company shipped baked beans to the Middle East. It's, it's actually quite a very fun story. But, uh, you know, one day Commodore called and said, you know, we've heard of this company, Taurus, and uh, they wanted to show him the Amiga 1000. 
Of course, Taurus Impex Limited, being that they shipped baked beans, was not the right company. They wanted Taurus, T-A-U-R-U-S, not Taurus, T-O-U-T-O-R-U-S, that uh, was Molyneux's company, because Taurus made the, the, the technical Taurus was uh, a maker of popular networking software. Uh, but despite all this, Molyneux went along with things, kind of lied effectively, and took the 10 Amigas that Commodore offered them and instead of making networking software, he made a database program. He touted it as the ultimate database product. Molyneux jokes that his penchant, if you will, for overpromising, began even here before he even knew what a computer really was. Uh, things went okay, but uh, again, even with this database product, they were they were pretty short of money. Trying, you know, they were kind of living day to day and, and all that. So soon after this whole database. Uh, situation happened. Molyneux was uh, was down in the pub, as uh, he claims he was quite often, and a friend of him's named uh, Simon Carter approached him and said, since he had 10 Amigas and only three employees, uh, would they use the extra computers to convert, the, uh, to convert a game that he and uh, his brother, I believe, had made called Druid 2? He wanted it to run on, on the Amiga. Molyneux accepted and made the conversion work in six months. This experience got him interested in games. He and Les Edgar renamed Taurus Impex to Bullfrog and fleshed out the team from three people to six people. One day, he and artist Glenn Corpus were playing David Brabin's 1987 game Virus. Now, Virus was a groundbreaking 3D shooter for the Amiga. Glenn was fascinated by the way the landscape was put together, and he started drawing small isometric blocks in an effort to replicate Virus's landscape. Molyneux saw these blocks, liked the idea, liked the whole block-based landscape idea, and asked Glenn to send him the blocks so he could start messing around with them. Playing with these blocks was where Molyneux really got into heavy programming for the first time. He rather embarrassingly says he didn't begin quoting in a quote-unquote man's language like assembler, but in a girly language, C. Not C++, not C-sharp, C, which to me is frankly a pretty hardcore language. <laughs> so, taking his fledgling programming skills and these isometric terrain blocks, he set out to programmatically create a map with, you know, land and animated water. By animated, he meant that the water blocks would alternate between kind of two different two different frames. So he did this by creating a 64 by 64 map of bytes, and it was called blocks, and this map held the blocks. There was then a second map which contained the information about what was in each block. It might have been called block info or something like that. All 16 map tiles were stored in a block file. So a block could contain either nothing or an item from the block file. The block file basically had 16 different images in it. Another file named Peeps contained all the sprites for people, effects, boss creatures, trees, anything anything else that would go on top of the block. So about a month into development, Molyneux had created a map with land, water, and people on it. It was a nice map, but there wasn't really a game here. And frankly, I say a month into development, it wasn't really a month into development of any specific project. It was just a month of him screwing around with this idea. So what he wanted to do was to simulate some form of curiosity in, uh, in the little people that lived on the map. So he created yet another 64 by 64 array, which he named Map Steps. 
Now, at the beginning of the simulation, all elements in the map steps array were set to zero. Once the sim kicked off, the people would start wandering around. Every time a person walked onto a block, he would increment the map steps value of that block by one. So with this function in mind, as the people moved across the map, they were designed to always move to the next adjacent block with the lowest map steps value. Or if all the blocks had the same value or two of the blocks had the same value, just choose one randomly. So in Molyneux's mind, this kind of simulated exploration. The peeps were motivated to go and look at a place that few people had gone before. This led him to an issue, though. He had flat land and he had water. The people were exploring the land, but being blocked by the water. And now Molyneux says this himself, so I don't think it's not insulting. Since he wasn't really the greatest programmer in the world, his people would get to a water block. And then they'd get sort of confused. They'd maybe just stop or they'd turn around. And uh, basically, he's, he fought with this problem. They, they'd get there and, they, and he didn't really know how to handle how these people were supposed, how these little peeps were supposed to handle getting to a barrier. So he, he fought with this problem for two days and he couldn't come up with a proper solution to fix their pathing. So instead, he simply created a function to raise and lower the land under the mouse pointer. This way... If a person got to the shoreline, instead of making them smart, the user could simply raise the land and have the person continue their exploration. As he played around with that function, he realized it was quite a bit of fun to raise and lower and deform otherwise the landscape. So the next thing he did right off the bat was uh, implement a simple two-player null modem capability where he and Glenn could raise and lower the land on the same map. The goal was to sink the opponent's people into the water and drown them. So as you can see, we still don't have a game here and there's still no idea and there's still no name and there's still no project, but stuff is kind of from playing and from messing around gameplay is sort of emerging. So now we had the beginnings of some kind of very rudimentary gameplay. However, all he had was a map with up to 256 people kind of just wandering around aimlessly. So he decided to start giving the peeps more to do. They would explore. And when they arrived at an empty block, they had the option to turn into a house. This provided a little bit of progression in the gameplay, but it also solved another problem. As the number of peeps on the map grew, it took more and more power and time to process their actions. By having them turn into a house, they could be dropped from the peeps processing loop, thereby speeding up the simulation. I mean, these, you know, these are very basic. I think he's programming right here directly for the Amiga. There's no multi-threading, multi-processing, multi-core. Uh, you know, basically each peep had to be processed sequentially in a loop. So the more peeps you had, the longer the loop took. So the less peeps, faster simulation. Changing the elevation of the land under a house would cause the person to come out and begin their search for another suitable piece of land. Uh, they could also increase the size of their house if there was enough flat, suitable land nearby. So despite this organic evolution of gameplay, there was still frustration. Molyneux and Corpus would play at least one match of their two-player game every day. They didn't really love the fact that you had no control whatsoever over any of the peeps. Right now, they just kind of wandered around on their own and you would just play with the land. So to solve this, they introduced what became known as the Papal Magnet, like I explained in the last section. Uh, Peter claims that he doesn't remember exactly how they came up with the name Papal Magnet, but he does suspect that copious amounts of alcohol may have been involved. So people would move toward the Papal Magnet instead of doing their normal pathfinding and settling routine. 
This allowed you to indirectly influence the direction in which your settling would happen. Again, this was fun, but it was still missing something. So they could settle the land, they can raise and lower it to encourage settling and use it as a weapon on opponents, and they can now influence where people would go. Now, the raising and lowering of land was a point effect. That is, it would only affect a single block per click. They decided to add in the concept of natural disasters. Floods would lower the land and earthquakes would raise it. Now, this was great in theory, but they noticed that the next few play sessions, uh, that the game was honestly decidedly much less fun. There was no limitation on how often you could invoke these disasters, so the game basically turned into a nuke fest. Obviously, some form of currency needed to be introduced to turn disasters into more of a special weapon. So this is when they introduced the concept of mana. Until now, settlements didn't have much of an effect on gameplay itself, aside from uh, claiming land as your own and taking peeps out of the processing loop. Well, this changed with the introduction of mana. Now settlements produced it. Each settlement you had would produce a certain number of mana points per tick. The exact amount would vary by the size of the settlement. Smaller ones would produce less, and larger would, of course, produce more. Now, this was even better, but now there was no end game. You'd play hurling disasters back and forth almost endlessly. There wasn't really a way to definitively gain an advantage and end the game. So, as they had been doing, Peter and Glenn came up with a solution. Once you had gained enough mana, you had the option to convert your papal magnet into a knight. The knight would run amok in your enemy territories, burning and pillaging everything in sight. Again, like I explained in the gameplay section. According to Molyneux, it was an incredibly fun addition to the game. It refocused all the gameplay. Before, it was a slow progression to be building the bigger settlement and slowly choking out your opponent. Now, the game became a race to be the first to start producing knights. So this added some semblance of an end game. But the multiplayer games that they were playing every day could still last for hours. So finally, they introduced the Armageddon spell. Now this spell effectively ends any control that any of the players have over the game. Once you have enough mana to cast it, both Papal Magnets are dropped to the center of the map and your peeps fight to the death. On top of racing to knights, you now needed to race to get enough mana to be the bigger one when you or your opponent casts Armageddon. So with that spell, the gameplay was done. Now while all this innovation was happening, Glenn was working on the interface. He came up with the concept of the Book of Worlds and the other visual elements like that. Uh, The one other major programming challenge that Molyneux encountered was translating the isometric view on the play area into the flat view of the world map. Again, he claims that his poor programming skills, quote-unquote, caused him to take a few days, but in the end he did manage to end up solving that problem. So, on the business side of things, however, Les Edgar, the company's CFO and co-founder, was shopping the unfinished game around to publishers with a series of demos, which Molyneux claims were dreadful. In 1989, though, most publishers were interested in things like side-scrolling shooters, combat flight sims, and other action-based violent games like that. Populous didn't have anyone shooting, and publisher after publisher passed on it. Eventually, though, he met up with EA, which had recently made some inroads in Europe. Uh, They had a hole in their spring schedule, and so they decided to give Populous a try. Molyneux and Edgar were not the most experienced negotiators, and uh, they ended up signing a fairly awful publishing contract with very low royalties and no money up front. 
But with the contract in hand, uh, they completed the gameplay and went into testing. Now, as I understand it, testing back then was not nearly as exhaustive as it is today. Games were tested very intensely for a day or two, and then basically just put into production. And this worked for most games of the time since they were small and short. Populous was incredibly long with 500 levels. So to resolve this, and you know this is a fairly common practice, the testers requested a cheat, which would allow them to jump to the end of uh, end of the game to test the uh, the end game sequence. Well, at this point, Molyneux realized that they had not created an end game sequence. So once you completed the last level, literally nothing happened. The game just ended. They had come up. They 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 had to come up with something real fast. <laughs> Well, between each level, they had introduced the character of the Goblin Lord. He's kind of there to challenge and berate you between each match. And they decided that after the last match, he'd simply raise his eyebrow, according to Molyneux, exactly three pixels, and say, well done. It's maybe not the most satisfying ending, but, you know, at the time, it it did the job. So Populous was complete. It released in March of 1989, and uh, Bullfrog had released their first game. Despite the fact that they hadn't actually set out to do it, they had also created the genre of God games. Now, it reviewed incredibly well, incredibly popular, groundbreaking, everybody loved it. In 1989, Populous by itself accounted for one-third of all of EA's revenue. That's not one-third of EA Europe's revenue, that's one-third of all of EA's revenue. And, uh, you know, the game's been converted to over 15 different platforms over the years, different languages, everything. Of course... With a game that popular, work soon began on a sequel, Populous 2, Trials of the Olympian Gods. Well, the first game cast you as some kind of undefined deity, Populous 2 is set in the framework of Greek mythology. You are a demigod, one of Zeus's children fathered with a mortal woman. Your task is to challenge a series of Greek gods culminating with Zeus himself. If you defeat all of them, your father will let you into the Pantheon on Olympus. So where the first game contained only eight divine intervention powers, Populous 2 contained 30 subdivided into their areas of effect. Earth, water, wind, fire, plants, and people. Each category had its own individual manometer. As the game progresses, indestructible monsters are released onto the map to encourage the match to end quickly. Uh, The game is twice as long as the original with 1,000 maps. However, like in the first game, if you performed well in individual matches, you'd skip a few maps so as not to have to play all 1,000 to complete the game. Uh, An additional data disc with missions set in Japanese mythology was also released. Populous 2 came out in 1991. Soon after that, I guess around the time of Dungeon Keeper, or maybe it was Dungeon Keeper 2, go back to the Dungeon Keeper episode to find out exactly the year, uh, Malyu left Bullfrog. In 1998, though, we'd see a third game in the series called Populous The Beginning. The game was produced by Stuart White, who had done work on games like XCOM at Microprose and actually works uh, works with Molyneux or has previously worked with Molyneux again in the intervening years. Populous The Beginning changes the premise of gameplay a little bit. Instead of being cast as a god, you're now a shaman who directly leads your tribe into battle. Uh, You lead your tribe across different planets in your solar system across 25 missions. 
Now, this game took elements from the original game, plus some RTS kind of elements from Dungeon Keeper to make a more hybrid experience. Uh, your villagers would automatically perform tasks like the minions would in Dungeon Keeper. Uh, also, this was the first game in the series to be in 3D. Like Syndicate Wars, it ran on a modified version of the Magic Carpet Engine. Now, the game sold well, but reviews were mixed. Reviewers loved the graphics, but they didn't love the genre-crossing gameplay. The game was fun, but it missed the focused gameplay of the earlier games. Now, despite that, it still played quite extensively today, even 15 years after its release. You are listening to the Upper so what does the future hold for Populous? Well, as some of you may know, there is a new game coming into the Pon- Populous Pantheon created by none other than Peter Molyneux himself. Back in November of 2012, Molyneux and his new company, 22 Cans, launch a Kickstarter for Goddess or Godus. I can't quite remember. I don't quite know how to pronounce it. Maybe I should watch the video. But uh, Goddess, let's call it that, is a spiritual successor to Populous. Uh, the campaign funded on December 20th of last year, and since then, the game has gone through development and has released on Steam as an early access beta back on September 13th, 2013, which is a little over a month ago. Uh, at its initial Steam release, Molyneux claimed that it was just about 40% complete. Molyneux is calling Goddess the regenesis of the God game. It takes the basic gameplay of Populous, lands, peeps, terraforming, and all that, and brings it up into current 3D graphics with a cool, flat, cel-shaded look. Uh, it also adds in some RTS aspects, such as resource gathering and battles. Thus far, reviews are middling, but they all qualify their statements by saying this is most definitely a beta, and many roadmap features are not yet implemented, so we will wait and see. If you'd like to check out Gotus for yourself, it is $20 on Steam in early access. Beta. Hi, this is Rick Moyer. And this is Amy Moyer. And we are the hosts of Taken With You. The weekly podcast where we discuss life at the geeky Moyer's home. And then we talk about our faith and how it relates to the world around us. Very, very positive podcast. And we think you really enjoy it. And I love Star Trek and heavy metal music. And I like Star Trek. Kinda. And heavy metal music. And I hate heavy metal music. <laughs> hate is a strong word. Oh, well, you got to understand, when you're recording... Give in to your hate, Amy. When you're recording and you go over and over those loud, obnoxious riffs, you know, I mm. do not like the loud guitar. You're talking about the Perry songs that I do. Some of them I like. Give in to your hate. You've done some big band songs and some soft songs that I've liked. Yeah, well, anyway. Yeah, I just don't really like the heavy metal. Want to hear more of our banter? You can by listening to our podcast. Where can they find it? You can find it at TakeHimWithYou.com or iTunes. That's right, iTunes. Yes. So you can tune in. and But I do like some sci-fi. Amy, I'm your husband. <laughs> I like Star Trek, and I like like Babylon Five. And Make it so. Some different questions. We're going too long now. Let's too long. go okay. away. You don't know the power of the podcast. Take it with you. That was kind of like Darth Vader. <laughs> Thank you.
Okay, so where can we get Populous today? Well, as I get to say a lot, all three games are available on GOG.com for $5.99 US each. I only played the first two, and they ran without issue on my Win 8 machine. Not 8.1, not yet, but uh, Windows 8. Uh, I was able to fire up my MT32 without too much trouble as well. So very easy to get, very easy to install, very, very easy to play. So before we get to the final verdict, because I'm sure you're all itching to know whether or not I like these games, because apparently my opinion is important, uh, we have a really great email from Paul, who has some personal experience with the game, since he uh, he actually worked with, uh, with or for, maybe not with, but maybe definitely for uh, Molyneux for a while at Lionhead Studios. So Paul writes, Hi Joe, glad you're covering Populous, arguably the pioneer of the god game genre. I still had a C64 at the time of release, and by the time I bought an Amiga, Theme Park was out and the populace just seemed and populace just seemed less interesting in comparison. I do have some recent personal history with Populous though. For Lionhead's first creative day during the studio meeting about it, uh, Peter suggested that a team could take a crack at redoing Populous and that he had some assets handy that we could use. Myself, another programmer, and the receptionist, who also happened to be a great musician, teamed up to make an HTML5 version of Populous using Node.js for the game jam. At that time, myself and the other programmer knew very little about the HTML5 canvas. We wrote a tile engine with a multiplayer server that worked across browsers and devices in around two long days. It was not the whole game. Though multiple players could play in the same world, villagers did settle on flat land, you could raise and flatten terrain, nippling, as Peter called it, and drown villagers. It looked and felt a lot like the original, but with an orchestral soundtrack. Uh, our, our version, you grabbed and pulled the terrain up and dragged it down with your mouse or dragged your finger on a touch device. It was a tough but fun experience. On Creative Day itself, the entire company went to the Odeon Cinema in Guildford Town Center. Every team took turns to present for a few minutes, each with some breaks for, uh, for refreshments in between. People could hook up their devices to the cinema screen and show things off and also uh, use it as a PA. I was nervous presenting, but it was an amazing experience. Considering all the other prototypes, games, and ideas in that show uh, that were also presented, we were very happy at the positive reception. It was one of the last experiences in my final weeks at Lionhead before I quit to start my new life here in Texas, but it was one of the best experiences. Things I saw at Creative Day were truly inspiring. Perhaps the whole thing was a little bit of foreshadowing, as of course Peter left Lionhead himself and is now working on Goddess. Looking forward to the podcast. Cheers, Paul. And uh, he left me some links for... Uh, for the Lionhead Creative Day, which uh, which I'll definitely put in the show notes because there's a lot of cool stuff in there. Thank you so much, Paul. This is just a, a great story from kind of maybe not behind the scenes of the original game, but uh, you know behind the scenes of uh, of what came after and uh, how very much uh, it seems like Peter Molyneux's follow-on companies. You know, after Bullfrog, there was Lionhead, and then I guess he did some stuff. At Microsoft and uh, and now onto Twenty Two Cans, where all throughout there's kind of this theme of populace where everything was kind of like other games came out and they did different things but there was always this vein that populace always always was there and actually in researching for this particular podcast i found a really really great talk that uh that molyneux did at gdc maybe in 2010 
And uh, that's actually where I got most of the dev story from. And and you can tell that he really does still love the game. At the end of the talk, he actually demoed Populous for a little bit, the Amiga version on an emulator. And, um, you know, you can still tell that he's actually, as much as he's self-deprecating and says he isn't a good programmer, you can tell he's still very proud of it. And, uh, you know, I think that's really great that that he, as much as, you know, he may overpromise and underdeliver and 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 all that stuff. You can tell that he is still very very passionate and he hasn't become jaded or anything like that. So you know you you do have to give uh, give the guy props for that. So thank you again, Paul. Great email. I love your uh, your bullfrog uh, game emails. Keep them coming. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block okay, so big question: Is Populous still fun? Well, here's the thing. It is. For some reason, I feel like it shouldn't be. The gameplay is really quite simplistic. I mean, you raise land, you lower land, your dudes build houses, and and that's really it. There's some other bells and whistles, but the main thing is you, you raise and lower land. But for some reason, the tightness and simplicity of the gameplay is what really makes this compelling. I mean, the graphics are okay, the sound is rudimentary, there's nothing here that's really making a groundbreaking game. But the gameplay just keeps you coming back for another round. I can see why Populous defined a genre. This is a must-play. I don't know if I try to get through all 500 levels, but for six bucks or even less on one of GOG's frequent sales, this is definitely, definitely worth a go-around. Hey guys, I'm Kenny. And I'm Teal. And we're here today to talk about a brand new companion cast for a fantastic new web series called My Gimpy Life. My Gimpy Life is loosely based on my life and the awkward situations I encounter being an actress with a disability in Hollywood. Yes, and I'll be on set every day bringing you live interviews from cast and crew members. So stay tuned for the brand new companion cast for My Gimpy Life. So that's that. As always, thanks to everyone who emailed in this week and who's been, you know, talking about stuff in the Facebook group and all, all that. And uh, on a side note, I know I mentioned it in the in the last uh, episode, but if you want to see me ineptly play some populace, uh, you can go check out the research clip I put up on YouTube. Uh, it's about forty five minutes. Uh, I'm not very good at the game, but uh, I have honestly been having a lot of fun streaming lately. And uh, that, of course, is at youtube.com slash umbcast. So next time, I am hitting some more Star Wars action with the Dark Forces series. That includes both the original Dark Forces games and the follow-on Jedi Knight titles. I am so looking forward to this. You guys know I'm a big Star Wars nut, so uh, there's going to be a lot of lore talk. And uh, in addition to all the technical stuff, we're going to talk about Kyle Katarn and, and all of his uh, his exploits and all of that noise. So... Um, Yes, that's going to be a really, really fun one. So send me your emails. How do you do that, do you ask? Well, you can always, as usual, send emails or audio comments to podcast at umbcast.com. Thank you to Rick Moyer for your great audio work. You can find his stuff over at moyermultimedia.com. Check out the show notes at umbcast.com. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast. Follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash umbshow and me personally at twitter.com slash billybob476. You can also find the show on Steam at steamcommunity.com slash group slash umbcast and uh, on YouTube at, as I just said, youtube.com slash umbcast where I've just started putting up some partial playthrough videos. Subscribe to the show on iTunes. Stream us live at Stitcher Radio. That is all. Thank you all very much for listening and we will see you next time for Dark Forces here on the Upper Memory Block.
battle control terminated. You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join.